guidance on our run, on the run. Guidance on the run from 1 Samuel chapter 23 verses 1 to 14. And uh, we are in our series called uh, David, a man after God's own heart. And uh, we are in the, the sixth part. We are, of course, in a time in David's life that uh, although he was anointed, already anointed as king, for some 10 years he was considered an outlaw on the run. Hunted down by Saul, he had to live as though he were a criminal in hiding. As we said last week, the God who invented mathematics and arithmetic and geometry and trigonometry and all of that, when it comes to his servants, he doesn't always plot the straight line between two points. Up and down, round and around, because the journey can be very long, even though it shouldn't take that long. But God has other plans. We've looked at some of his ups and downs, his, his courage his, on one side, his deception on the other, and then the faith. In the midst of it all, he fought the battles before him and delivered Israel from her enemies. He lived with his faithful men in the wilderness and in caves, yet he knew that the Lord was with him and trusted God's promise that he will deliver and give him the promised throne for which he was already anointed. Now during this unsettling period, we have to ask ourselves, how did he know what to do and where to go? And this is why the the lesson this morning has to do with, with guidance, because that is a big issue, not just when you're making the decisions as you are growing up in your teenage years and then later on as you seek someone to marry and settle down and then the employment issues and church and it goes on, doesn't it? We need guidance. And how do we as believers make not just important decisions but also the less important and we sometimes might even consider them rather trivial. So the goal this morning is to come up with some type of biblical framework that will help us make good choices under the guidance of God, irrespective of what stage in life we are at. And as you know, as a church, we, we've got all different stages in this life. Now at the end of the last chapter... Chapter 22, Saul commits an atrocity. And that was, in the early part of the chapter, we could see it uh, unfolding. Where he authorises Dodgy Doug, that was a character we met before, to go on a killing spree at Nob. He asked Dodgy Doug to do the dirty deed because... His own soldiers said, no, we can't do this. We're not going to slaughter innocent people. But Dodgy Dag ends up killing the priests, men, women, children 
and even animals that were there in the town of Nob. And David felt he was cut up about this. He felt personally responsible for the massacre because he was there before the priests getting bread and then taking Goliath's sword. And by him being there, he compromised that very place. It was a holy place. One of the priests gets away, who happens to be the high priest's son, and finds David and tells him the tragic story. And it's sad because how did he get to this? Early in his reign, Saul started so well. He did what God had anointed and called him to do. He attacked God's enemies, attacked the Philistines. But in his madness now, he turned to persecuting the people of God. The very people that he was supposed to look after, he turned around and started slaughtering them. How many times has this happened in governments and, 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 and so many things, the very people that elect you to power and, that, and give, put you in that position, and then the government, the leadership, the, the dictators turn on the very own people. It's sad. But it's just been repeated all over the world in history. How much more How much more terrible when a leader like Saul stops listening to God and starts doing things his own way. Now David, he's seeing all of this. He knows what is happening. He's aware of this and he does not want to now make the same mistake that Saul is making. He needs God's help. He needs God's guidance. So therefore, God enables him in, in, in three key areas. And first of all, in the direction, in verses 1 to 6. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we are afraid, how much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Again, David inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. While King Saul was occupied in going after David with his soldiers, the Philistines are having a party. It's a free-for-all. They're able to continue their aggression unmolested. And the latest incursion was directed at Keilah, which was in the border between Judah and the Philistine countries. It it was, Keilah, the town of Keilah was some four kilometres down from the cave of Agilom, where where David was before, and about 12 miles from the capital, the Philistine capital of Gath. King Saul, who was supposed to protect his people, he should have sent a detachment of his soldiers to protect the town. But because he was obsessed with David, he just left his own people exposed to the enemy. What's more is that it was a critical period. It was harvest time. 
The farmers did all the hard work to sow, to toil the land and then to harvest months later. And now that the grain is collected all in one place at the threshing floor where it's separated, ready, getting it ready for storage and eating, then at that moment the enemy comes for the loot. No grain, no bread, no woolies. Starvation is what follows. Something had to be done. The enemy always tends to come for something that we have. The robbers usually know when payday, in the old days, they used to know when payday was coming and uh, when the boss would go to the bank and withdraw all the, all the wages, right, to, to take it to the factory. And sure enough, a lot of the times the, there will be a hold-up. Remember those days? Before internet banking and all of that? It's the same principle. It's the same principle when they know that it's going to be benefit, they go after it. David hears about this. They're in a... Remember, they've left the cave. They are now hiding in a forest in Judah. They're back in Judah because of the prophet gave them the instruction. Go back to Judah. They're in the forest of Hereth, which is a good hiding place and naturally the men are sort of protected there. Kila was on the plain, it was exposed, they would have to leave their protection, they would have to leave their forest and then go, take a risk out in the open. They could be not only wiped out by the Philistines, but Saul would hear about it, he would catch them before they returned to their protection in the forest where they're hiding. These were battle-hardened soldiers already. They weren't cowards. They simply don't think the danger is worth the risk. Sure, the town is overtaken. Sure, they're going to take the grain. Sure, they're going to rape and pillage and do everything that happens when a town is overtaken. Why should we care? Why should we risk it? Well... David cared. When David heard about it, something stirred within his heart and he cared. He wasn't the king. It wasn't his responsibility. Why should he care? But he did. But then David had to deal with his soldiers. Mate, why are we doing this? Why are we getting out of our way and risking life on them? And so they express their fears to David. So David inquires of the Lord, not once. He goes once, then he goes again. And both times the Lord tells him to go and attack the Philistines and save the town. The first time, it's a command. 
The second time he inquires, the answer comes back, a command with a promise. I don't know whether you picked it up or not. A command with a promise. Because a command on its own seems a little bit unreasonable, doesn't it? But if it comes with a promise, and if the promise is true, then the command is completely realistic. The commands of God are like this in the Scriptures. The commands of God should never be isolated from the promises of God. That is a principle in Scripture. Command, promise. Let me give you the best example. Go and make disciples of all nations. Right? On its own, it sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But then we hear the promise. What's the promise? What's the promise? What was that? I'm with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. You are not doing this alone. I'm giving you a command, but I'm going to be with you. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the difference. Now, two points, again, are, are worth noting here in David's spiritual revival that he's going through. This is, this is a different David than the one that, you know, went on his mad streak. First of all, David is unwilling, is unwilling to... Go help the town of Keilah without hearing from the Lord. No, he, he wasn't just, oh, let's just go. All right? I don't care what anybody says, I'm going. No, David inquires of the Lord. All right? His passion, his desire had to have confirmation from God. It wasn't just his idea, his feeling, or the injustice of it all, right? No, he needed that confirmation. Secondly, David immediately obeyed once he knew God's will. Once you know, you go. And rise up to your duty. Case closed. End of discussion here. If he had listened to his men, he would have, what? Done nothing. If he, was, uh, if he believed in democracy, okay, guys, let's take a vote here. Who says we go? Who says we stay? Huh? No. David says, I'm going to inquire. And then they followed. The command and the promise are met with obedience. Command, promise, obedience. It's okay to have the command, it's okay to have the promise, but if it's not followed up with obedience, what's the point, right? 
It is in the obedience that the command and the promise are proved true. And and verse 5 says to us, and he saved the people of Keilah. Go, David, you will save them. And verse 5, he saved the people of Keilah, obviously with God's help. So, the next part of, of the guidance is in the warning, in the warning. First is the direction, go, go, then comes the warning, the protection. Uh, 7 to 12, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. God often has a way of bringing good even out of terrible situations. It so often happens. You say, well, what good can possibly come out of that tragedy? What happened with the slaughter of all those priests in the town of Nob? Well, there was one good thing that came out of it. After Saul slaughtered the priests at Nob, one of them escaped. He was Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. He came to David, he found David, and he brought with him an ephod. An ephod uh, was like an apron that the priests used. And, and, and attached to this ephod, you can read about it in, the, in, the, in Exodus and, and, the, and Leviticus and other books. Attached to this ephod were the, the Urim and the Thurman. What on earth is the Urim and the Thurman? It's got nothing to do with Irma Thurman. Um, and it, it's Exodus chapter 28 verse 30 talks about the Urim and the Thurman which were associated with receiving guidance from God. We don't have specific details what they were, but they gave the most basic yes or no type answers. The power associated with the ephod had passed from Ahimelech, the high priest, to his son and now it's made available to, to David. Now something significant is happening here. Last week we spoke about the prophet God, right? And God now is bringing together the three officers the three offices God is bringing together. The prophet Gad, Abiathar the priest, he brings them together to the future King David. Prophet, priest and king. Let's remember that David's descendant Jesus would hold all three offices in himself. Prophet, priest and king. What does the prophet do? The prophet, the prophet hears from God 
to, and delivers God's message to the people. The priest takes God's, takes the, the people's word, their sacrifices, their prayers, and he takes them to God. That's the, the, these are the primary roles. Hearing from God and taking to God, interceding before God. And here they're all coming together before the king, which is exactly what our Lord Jesus does before us. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And when it comes to divine guidance, let's consider the contrast between these two men, Saul and, and, and David. Both men, obviously, had different interpretation of what God's will was. Saul, for example, does not give thanks to God for saving Keilah from the Philistines. Thank you, Lord, for saving, right? It should be a note of praise. Thank you, Lord, for saving the people of Keilah from the, from the enemies. Saves me having to do it. What he does praise God for is that David is now trapped, he's thinking, in his hands. He did, I think, what we often do by imposing God's will, reinterpreting God's will by our feelings. And, and we misinterpret the events on the basis of what we want instead of what God wants. We put God's name above, you know, we, we say, yeah, it is God's will, but in the end it's really what, what we want. So we just got to throw in God's yeah, name in there and say, yeah, God bless me and God is doing this and all of this. And I, I think, mate, is this really what God wants or are you just putting it in there, throwing it in there? Remember the story of over a century ago when uh, a bishop pronounced from his pulpit and in a, in a paper that he was editing, he said that heavier than air flight was both impossible and contrary to the will of God. The irony is that Bishop Wright had two sons, Orville and Wilbur. He was certainly sure of himself, but as they say, right was wrong. When David realises uh, that Saul may come after him at Keilah, uh, he, 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 he inquires of, he uses, he calls for the ephod and inquires of the Lord and he asks God two questions. He says, will Saul come after me in Keilah? Yes, the Lord replied. Will the men of Keilah turn me over to Saul? Again, the answer was yes. So, realising the danger, David took his men and started singing on the road again. Here we go. Have to move again. Now, don't you find it a little bit 
Or is it just me? A little bit bewildering how the people who had just been rescued from the Philistines, how could they so quickly turn on their hero, their saviour? How is this possible? Where is the thankfulness? Where is the, the, the keys to the city? Where is the parade? Where is the statue in David's honour for rescuing our town? Well, I'm thinking, like the residents of Keelan, saying, but maybe they heard that Saul, what he just did at, at Nob, right? And quickly, gratefulness surrendered to fear. It is not human behaviour at all to turn on your saviour, is it? No. Then we hear the cry, crucify him, crucify him, and ask, how could they? How could the very ones who he came to save, how could they so easily turn and then dance on his grave? How could they? And then I realise how fickle my own devotion to my Saviour is. And then I have to put down my stone when I acknowledge I could also have been in that crowd with peer pressure and how much I had to lose. I could also have been there. Then we look at protection. Verses 13 to 14, protection. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he didn't go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Sif. And day after day, Saul searched for him and get this, but God did not give David into his hands. Ultimately, it's all in the hands of God, right? And again, just just think of what his mental state would have been at this stage. It seems that no matter what David does, things can only get worse. Despite the fact that he's anointed, he kills a giant, he wins the battles, he delivers the people, he saves them, he's still on the run, still moving from place to place. And I think there's another important principle here from the Bible and it's that a period of God's blessing is often followed by deep personal discouragement. You know the story of Elijah. We spoke about this. Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. He runs away and he hides, sinking into deep depression, asking God to take his life. Soon after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he tells, he tells us in, in Galatians, he says that he spends years in Arabia. It often happens that when God wants to raise us up, he first casts us down so that we may learn in our weakness, in our emptiness, to rely 
wholly on him, not on ourselves. And that's a theme that Paul constantly repeats in his letters, doesn't it? And, and I think it's something that, is, that the righteous, that the children of God will never fully solve. Don't ask me for answers, okay? Ask God why that is. So when we have the victories, when we are at the peak, when we are in our, in our glory mode, right? When the, the halo is right on top of our head. Mate, it's not going to last, okay? Don't, don't, don't get too happy. Don't enjoy too much because you know what's coming next. I'm, I'm just giving you what, what happens in the Scriptures. This side of heaven, our victories... And our sorrows, mind you, will always be temporary. Because we need to depend on the Lord always. And that's the way that God wants it to be. Depend on Him. And like David, I think there's a reason why he's going through this period. Is that David is getting well trained through hardship and suffering He's getting trained for the high office of kingship so he could sit on the throne. After his failed mad excursion in the Philistines, he was trying to, like Frank Sinatra, do things his own way, right? But now he's doing things God's way. It's, he's still running. He's still, you know, on the edge of his life. He's still risking it all. But it's different because God is with him. And this is why he is consulting God's will for his next move. And when he consults God, he gets the answer. Yes, they will betray you. Yes, you have to leave. So this enabled him to be rescued, protected from Saul, from his enemies. Like David, when we are in the habit of consulting the Lord, I think we can also be rescued from all manner of dangers. If, just think about it. If you just followed the Ten Commandments, right? You don't follow the rest of the Scriptures, just follow the Ten Commandments. Just think of how much trouble you will avoid. Consider the sexual indulgence of our age. It's not illegal in the land, in our land, to commit adultery. But it is a sin according to the scriptures. But just imagine the brokenness that results from adultery. Right? If you just followed God's command, how much trouble could you avoid? He's protecting you from something much worse. Christians who follow God's word are delivered from great sin. They are protected. Delivered from many woes. I'm not making this up. Add to this the, the frenzy of, of materialism of our age. The greed, the tenth commandment. Right? The, capitalism is built on greed. Remember the old Wall Street movie? Greed is good. Says who? Men say that. What does the Bible say? 
It is not good. This is what 1 Timothy says, 1 Timothy 6.9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul says to Timothy, stay away from that. That's how God protects you through his word. Now, my last part this morning is the advice for discerning God's will. If we weren't practical before, it's certainly going to be a lot more practical now. Christians today might say that today we don't have the prophetic resources that, uh, that David had, uh, the Urman, the Thurman, Thurman, Irma Thurman, you know, we don't have that. So how are we supposed to know, yes or no, you know, that David had? Well, in his book, uh, in a book called uh, Discovering God's Will by Sinclair Ferguson, he gives some scriptural advice for discerning God's will uh, in important and not so important decisions. But nevertheless, these are the type of decisions that we make. And, and, and here is some really good advice. So there's four steps that he, he gives us. First of all, firstly, when faced with a choice, we should understand what the Bible prohibits or commands. So as Christians, we are not to live in sin, but to obey God's word. Therefore, any action which is contrary to the plain word of God that involves Lying, for example, I'm just giving you some examples here that involves lying, hating, stealing, is not on. It's not on. The Bible gives us some clear guidelines in our decision making, not just what we shouldn't do, but also what we should do as well. Not just the negative, but the positive as well. So it is always God's will for us to obey His commands and never to violate His law. That's His will. If you want to know God's will, that's his will. So having ascertained which actions are forbidden for me, the next step, secondly, Christians should then consider which options are wise and beneficial according to biblical principles. For example, we ask ourselves, is the action in accordance with biblical priorities. If not, then even if it's not forbidden, it should still be avoided. Let me give you some examples where this might be the case. Is this a job that will provide for my family while enabling me to be a faithful as a husband, a father and a Christian? Does this prospective husband or wife exhibit strong faith and biblical character? Is this a reasonable purchase given my resources and my desire to support the work and mission and 
other things like that. Am I going to be over, overly committed if we do this? Will this choice strengthen my relationship with Jesus or is it going to weaken my faith? Now, these questions are important because it is possible to make choices which are not forbidden, strictly forbidden in Scripture, but could nevertheless choke out our spiritual energies. Remember the, the third seed? Choke out, choke, to choke. Doesn't let us grow because our energies are devoted elsewhere. It is possible to commit ourselves to things which, however legitimate, will eventually lead us away from God. It's not like a a 180 type of thing, but it's a tangential departure from what is true and what is right. It's a tangent, right? Thirdly, I hope you're writing these down. Christians should ask what effect a given choice or decision is likely to have on others. Yes, I know we are in the, we have a pandemic apart from COVID. There's another pandemic, the pandemic of the self. It's all about the self. It's about me. It's what I want. It's my desire. It's how I feel. It's how... Nobody should tell me what I can do or can't. However, Christians have to think a different way. We ask what effect a given choice or decision is likely to have on others. How will this action, we ask ourselves, how will this action affect family members, co-workers, friends, fellow church members? How is it going to affect them? Yes, it is true. The Bible does teach Christian liberty in matters of biblical permission. You, you shouldn't have to tell me what I can eat or what I can drink or whatever. Yet the Apostle Paul also says that our Christian liberty was always be, be guided by responsibility and love towards others, especially the weaker brothers in the faith. Paul says that we should never allow our choices to destroy the work of God. Our choices, our liberty. To make another stumble. Because what happens is that we we tend to be motivated by concerns for our own things, personal comfort, personal security. Yet God always challenges us to sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of of others. Yes, I know. Others will cramp your style, right? Annoying, right? Yet that's exactly what as Christians we're called to do. Fourthly, Christians should compare their proposed action with a biblical example or illustration. Illustration. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So we ask, how did faithful men and women in Scripture handle this same situation I'm facing now? How did they do it? 
Yes, I know, we can go through all the failures and say, yeah, I'm just, yeah, they did that. You know, David, Bathsheba and all of that. There you go. That's the example I want to follow. No. No, you've missed the point. Now, how, how, what good actions, what, how did they handle it? Most importantly is the example, of, obviously, of Jesus Christ. Because much that Jesus did could only be done by him because of who he was. But when it comes to Jesus' compassion, his example, his compassion for the weak, his zeal for God, his courage, even before so much opposition, how did Jesus handle the opposition? Jesus is obviously our perfect model to follow. But there are many others in Scripture. Just read on. Now these principles of that I've given you of biblical decision making uh, assume two vital preconditions. The first is that we, we know our Bibles. We are reading our Bibles. We are spending time seeking God's will through his word. We're actually committed to doing what it says. Um, but then we also speak to God through prayer. Not just hearing what he says on his word, but we're actually lifting our hearts to God in prayer, asking him, like David did, what his will is. Show me, Lord. This, obviously, this, this matches the two resources that David was given. What were the resources that he was given? He was given the prophetic word, and then he was given the priestly intercession. Hearing from God and lifting up to God. Right? The two things that need to go together. Let me leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans when it comes to guidance. Romans 12.2 Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Some great words there transformed by the renewal of our mind. That way we will be able to discern God's will for our lives. May God bless us. Amen.